Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Another Friday, and I'm Janice Leibovitz, and you are my People of the Book. And my guest today is Colleen Hicks, all the way down in the Cape. Hi, Colleen. Great to have you with me. Hi, Janice. And we are mainly going to be discussing Colleen's new book that she's brought out very bravely during lockdown, but it has been distributing far and wide. And the book is called My Mother, My Madness. And it is about the last 10 years of Colleen's mother's life. And we're going to be chatting about that shortly. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Colleen's background. And Colleen, you're the founder of Mojaji Books. You yes. founded, yes, you founded Mojaji, um, in 2007, predominantly yeah. as a platform, as a platform for Southern African female writers. Yes. And, and uh, carry on, carry on. No, no. Okay. Um, so, what what you've done actually it's not just a publishing house what you've done with this is you've actually you don't only publish books but you've actually created networks among other small presses in Africa which i think is the most incredible thing because you you also publish small publishers catalogs which yeah. brings all these publishing houses together which is quite amazing but tell us all, all, um, tell, tell the listeners about the publications that you, that you've brought out because a lot of them have won very prestigious awards. Um, <laughs> yeah, there have been quite a few award winners. So yeah, it's Mojaji Books and, um, we've been going for 13 years. It's still a very small enterprise and, you know, it's been quite, it's been quite tough with lockdown, um, but I'm hoping that things are <laughs> changing already. Um, but yeah, it's, it's I've published a woman's writing, Southern African woman's writing, novels, short stories, poetry, essays, some nonfiction, and the small publishers catalogue side of it was a carryover from my work at the Center for the Book, where I did one for for South Africa, but um, I started thinking that it would be good to have connections between publishers and other parts of the continent. Um, I mean, the, the small published catalog is a very small, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know how to put it, tool to, to make these connections. Um, but, you know, the connections are building. It's just very difficult to to get books from one African country to another. It's expensive. And, you know, those sort of trade routes are not that um, well, well established, unfortunately. Right. You know, it's much easier for us to get books from the United States and from the UK than it is to get books from Nigeria, you know, um, strangely. Right. And you yourself have been writing for quite some time. You've brought out two of your own poetry collections and also a short story collection. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I, I was one of those, you know, people who started writing as a teenager, I guess. And, um, I mean, going to university put me off thinking that I couldn't compete with, you know, the, the masters, as it were. <laughs> but yes. I came back to writing later. I mean, I kept a journal um, all those years. But I think getting into publishing was partly about myself as a writer knowing how hard it could be to, um, you know, to get a foot in the door. Um, so, but, you know, I've discovered as a publisher, you, you do have to say no. I mean, you can't publish all the books there are, all the amazing manuscripts that there are out there. You know, you can only publish a few. So even if you start out wanting to not be a gatekeeper, you'll end up having to be one, you know. Yes, yeah, true. Yeah, true. Yeah. And so I suppose with you, with, as you say, you, you started writing and you've always written and you've always journaled. It was probably inevitable that you were going to journal and write about what you were going through with your mother. It was, it was quite inevitable that you were going to put pen to paper and, you know, um, write down and, and chronicle what you were experiencing and going through with your mom. Because the book, the My Mother, My Madness, yes. is written in diary format. Yeah, that was a little bit different because what I did was I started a secret blog, actually. So it was a public, it was public in the sense that it was out there in the blogosphere, but I didn't attach my name to the blog. Why um, is that? Well, because I just wanted to feel free to write about my mother without her maybe seeing what I was writing. I don't know exactly, but I just felt safer to do that. Because, I mean, as a publisher, one does have a little bit of a profile. So I just, you know, and I mean, but but what was different about it than writing in my own notebooks was that there was a kind of imagined audience, I suppose. Yes. So it did help me to select what I wrote. You know, there were things that I might write in a journal that I wouldn't have written on the blog, for example. Right. So, um, and also... Having an imagined audience is about knowing that you need to say more about something because that reader doesn't know everything about your life. Whereas when you write in a journal, you know, <laughs> if you're writing it for yourself, in a sense, you can do do lots of shorthand, personal shorthand yes. work. So, yes. yeah, I think that was the slightly different thing about this particular piece of writing or Extended piece of writing. So, so when you decided to publish the book, did you take, I mean, obviously there's some tweaking that gets done and there's, there's adjusting, there's amending, but did you take it directly from what you had previously written? Yes. I mean, it was a, I would say it was a first draft, what was on, I mean, a good first draft, what was on the blog. Um, I mean, a lot of it wasn't written in full sentences, and I have kept some of that in the final version. But um, so, I mean, I edited it myself and cut some things out and worked on it as much as I could, and that took me quite a while. Um, and I was going to possibly publish it with Majaji, so in other words, publish it myself. But yes. I started thinking that it might be nice to get a, you know, to have it published. With another I always, I, I always wonder about that, about why you didn't publish with your own company. And I know someone else from an overseas um, publishing company, she does 
PR for them. And she's also an author, but she doesn't publish her own books with her own publishing company either. And yes. I've always wondered about that. Well, you know, I mean, I did have published some of my own work, but I'm glad that I, I got a publisher. So Robert Berold, who is also um, has a small press called Deep South, he, he lives in Macanda, Grahamstown. Um, and he's an old friend of mine. So I asked him if he would read the manuscript and give me, you know, some feedback. But, I mean, I also know that he he's an obsessive editor. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, so he read it and he did have he, – he liked it, you know. He liked the manuscript very much. And But he, he did edit it for me and – he gave it back to me and then he said that he was interested in publishing it, you know. So we discussed that and, um. And the rest we, is history. Yeah, the rest is history. And you know, it was actually lovely for me to have a publisher because, um, having someone on your side and on the side of the book and the writing and to work on it and, um, Sort of yeah, take take yeah, a bit of the pressure know, so, off. Yes. Exactly. So yeah. to have an advocate for your work, it's you know, I actually really saw the beauty of having a publisher. I mean, I've seen it, and we're still in the process. I mean, yes. it's not that long. Yeah. Um, so and we're going to, we're going to we after the ad break, we're going to get more into discussing the actual book itself and the content. But we're going to take a break now, and we'll be back after that. I love it when you. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Now we're going to be chatting about her new book that she's brought out called My Mother, My Madness, which is about the last 10 years of her mother's life and the relationship that Colleen had with her mother and how she coped and how she managed with those last years of her mom's life. So, Colleen, your mom and and you, you and your mom, you you did have quite a fraught relationship um throughout yes um you know i mean as a younger person it, i didn't how can i say i didn't understand my, my relationship with my mother as well as i came to understand it later um i mean in, in fact we were quite close you know as as a teenager and so on but i mean i think in, you know in many ways it was sort of unhealthily close because my mother treated me as her confidant and friend, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. But by the time I was looking after her, as described in the book, um, she had had some minor strokes and also had developed de- dementia. Um, it wasn't... Um, an extreme form of it. it and in fact, you know, it got better after she had been living at the care center where she lived her last 10 years. Um, and I thought that it might be because of the containment that she found there. You know, she had objective people who, who weren't involved with her deeply in the way that I was and who could give her professional and kind care. And she also, you know, became familiar and she had her little apartment and routines and she actually became less repetitive and less, um, and more outgoing and, you know, how can I say the, the effects of the dementia se- seem to diminish to some extent, um, to, 
the last few years of her life. Um, but, yeah, but and, and I do find, and I know, sorry. and I know that, that I do find that I know that people will think that, um, you know, you're talking about dementia and you're talking about your mother being in a care facility, and you do talk about the excellent care she received and um, the objective the objectiveness of the people who, who looked after her and because of the, det- the detachment that they had and because of the, the lack of that close relationship, um, they were able to be detached and objective in their care of her and their assessment of her. Um, and I know that people will think, oh, this sounds so depressing and so, you know, we don't want to read this heavy book. But there is such a sense of um, upliftment and hope that one is left with um, by the end of the book, and I really don't feel I'm, I'm giving any spoilers here, but the way the book is written, and I think I described it as you putting your heart and soul onto those pages, because your your blatant honesty and the authentic way that you write this, as you say, you had been you had been journaling and you had been blogging, um, albeit anonymously, but it's very difficult to admit, as you do here, that you found it so difficult to to visit your mother and to do the smallest things for her, even if it was placing an online order for her. And I found that your willingness to open up about that and to put yourself out there, I found that quite refreshing because people are quite unwilling to admit, you know, we are when when our our older relatives and our our parents specifically, when those roles are reversed, and as children we become the nurturers and the caregivers to our older relatives, we are expected to automatically adjust to that role reversement, and and. You, you openly admit that, that you found it difficult. You didn't want to do it. You, some days you just could not face it. Yes. <clears throat> I mean, I think that my, you know, in the, the, my relationship with my mother as an adult, um, it was difficult. And so taking her on and taking on the care of her for the last 10 years, I'm the oldest of four children, um, of her four children. And, um, it, you know, it was a kind of burden in a way and, but I felt I had to do it and I wanted to do it. Um, but emotionally it was, it was difficult, you know, because my mother was really difficult. I mean, she also was bipolar and, her, and then, her, and the, and, and the had, bipolar diagnosis only came much later in her life. Yes, but I mean, there were, if you look back on her life, you can see that, you know, that she was, although it wasn't diagnosed. Um, yes. I mean, I think that what I also do try to do in, with the, the sort of tone that I write, it is honest, it's sort of flat, you know, I'm not kind of exaggerating or, um, I'm trying to just, as you say, tell the truth. I mean, I wonder if I shouldn't just like read a, a, a tiny bit to show. Yes, yes um, please do. Um, just trying to find a good example. Um, yeah, so this was, um, I should actually have kept the years. Um, anyway, it's, it was in the first couple of years that I was looking after her, 2nd of November, staying alive is the little heading. 
so many chores. Just being alive is a long work in progress. Just being alive, staying alive. Cue the Bee Gees. So glad tomorrow is Tuesday and the day I see my analyst. It's always cheering to see her, reassuring, sifting through the lentils and stones with her, sorting things out. It brightens my heart. At times I find it hard to figure out which is which, to trust myself, to be on my own side. My side is the one of the bad, hard-hearted girl, the cold one, the one who is not a good daughter, not a good friend, not a good wife, who guards her time and her energy preciously, ferociously. I feel slightly beset tonight, overwhelmed, overloaded. All day my inner weather has been changing for the worse. Colder, rainier, stormier, inclement. I love Kate with all my heart. That's my daughter. But I also wonder if I am a good mother, a good enough mother. Am I too soft? Am I failing her in her growth to independence? Am I keeping her crippled and needy of me? I don't want to do those things. But it's not always clear what one is doing. What is the right choice? <clears throat> At seven, she likes to, wants to, demands to be put to bed by one of us. And tonight she tried having our dog, Harry, a golden retriever on her bed. But she didn't go to sleep until I'd finished Sally's online shopping. So Sally is my mother. Yes. Um, it was meant to be her dad putting her to bed tonight, but she wanted to try by herself. Her dad is a bit all or nothing and not prepared to engage in going to sleep experiments at 7 o'clock at night. I'm endlessly flexible and open to suggestion and to finding a better way. I feel like crying tonight. Sometimes my life feels full of loss and grief and tears. While I was putting Kate to bed, I thought about the woman's clothing shop, Robel, in Pinelands that sells clothes for older women and in larger sizes. I will have to look at it and perhaps buy my mother some clothes. She takes a size 44 or 46 in pants and 42 in tops. She has become heavier, more overweight than she has ever been from no exercise and all that coke and the good food at the luxury retirement resort. So, I mean, that's just one entry. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, in that entry, it, it just, I think that encapsulates so much of what you were experiencing. You had a young child. You, you described your, your husband at the time. Um, now obviously your ex-husband and, and how, how you were feeling about your mother and you described her, her life and how she had put on so much weight and the amount of coke she was drinking and the, her lack of activity and, and it moves on from there. And, and, um, for, for you listening, you'll, you'll hear the, I, I know that, that I said it, it sounds depressing and it sounds, but it really, the book is not a depressing book. I need to really emphasize this. It is not a depressing book. And, and as Colleen has said, um, each of the, the diary entries has a little heading. It's a little description of each entry, which I loved because, um, she, she picks up on, on one idea from each entry and that's, that's the title of the entry and I really enjoyed that. I think that was just a lovely idea. But it encapsulates how I think we as women feel and I know there's going to be so much emphasis on women with Women's Month coming up, but I am going to emphasize this again. Um, women are automatically seen as, as nurturers and you took on the role and you said that you wanted to take on the role of being the one who was the, the, the predominant carer for your mother, even though you had two other siblings living in the country. You had um, a sister living overseas. 
but you had two other siblings who were living in Cape Town nearby. Yes. I mean, they did. And, you know, my mother lived with my brother in Musenberg uh, for two or three years. So, in a sense, he had done his duty. Um, <laughs> he deserved his time. Then the other brother did help me, and he always had my mother for Christmas because that was a period when I could actually go away. Um, but, you know, it actually, I mean, it sounds as though, yeah, why, why didn't they help more? But, you know, it's easier in some ways to take on something and to be totally responsible because you don't have to debate things. You just know how you're going to do it. <laughs> um, and, and then also you do it your way. Exactly. And, yes, and you know how it's being done and you're not leaving it to somebody else to do it the way that you you wouldn't have done it yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, my I, brother, I for example, that. bought her a, a new TV when she needed one, you know, and that's not something I would have enjoyed doing, going and buying a new TV. Or I think at one point she had to get a new decoder. Oh, because she set fire to her apartment by mistake. <laughs> and yes. we had to replace everything. And one of the things was her, her DSTV decoder. So my brother also organized that. I mean, I just – those kind of things are not – Things I like doing. I mean, not that I like shopping online by pick and pay, you know, pick and pay for yes. But I mean, it, it was doable, you know. Right, but that setting fire to her apartment, um, accidentally, as you say, <laughs> was, was actually a catalyst for, for a lot of positivity that came after that. Yes, as, for her. As awful as it sounds, yes. Yeah. I mean, so she had to then, get out of her apartment because she wasn't allowed to smoke in the apartment any longer and go downstairs. She lived on the third floor. So she had to walk along this corridor. Um, you know, it was, I, I don't know how many meters, but I mean, it, it, for somebody who was pretty much immobile, it actually was quite a walk. And then she took the lift downstairs and she would hang out with other people downstairs and she would watch, you know, sports matches and, She'd have to go outside to smoke. So she became more sociable, whereas she'd been very yeah, withdrawn. She start, yeah, she really started to engage with the people who, who were living around her. Yes. And who she'd had previously had no contact with, really. Yeah. Because she preferred yeah. to stay in her room. Well, I mean, she had contact with them at, at meal times, but, but yeah. other than that, yeah, she had limited contact. Um, yeah, so she started to, to come out of her shell in a way. Because of that, but then she then she did actually carry on smoking in her apartment, sort of secretively. She would pressurize some of the people who would be on reception late at night or at you know times when there weren't a lot of other people around, and she would get them to give her more than one cigarette at a time. And then she would take them upstairs and smoke in her apartment. So at a certain point, my brother and I were called in to try and manage her and get her to stop but it wasn't so easy <laughs> um, I mean, so it's like being, like being called to the yeah. principal's office really yeah. yeah and and um your description of that is exactly like that it is like being called to the principal's office and having to to face some you know these these members of the board and you know being yes. told you know and 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 as much as you are caregivers and gatekeepers and you know she was an adult and 
you know, you're not there all the time. You're not responsible for, for her actions. And it must have been incredibly, incredibly painful and incredibly difficult to, to try. And I mean, I don't like to use the word control, but I mean, what were you actually expected to do? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the com, you know, the thing that was strange, you know, I don't know, complicated about my mother was that in some ways she, she gave up control of her life, you know. I mean, partly it was involuntary, but I also think that there was some aspect of it where she just didn't want to take responsibility any longer. But then she also wasn't so keen on all of the fallout of that. You know, she would have liked to have just right. been allowed to sit and smoke 90 cigarettes in her apartment every day. <laughs> it's a lot of cigarettes. Wow. I wonder yeah. how she would have coped with the, the cigarette ban during lockdown now. That would have been Yeah, I must say, quite I difficult. feel grateful that I didn't have to deal with that. Because wow. you know, she, she passed away in 2017. So... Um, you know, it would have been complicated and difficult. I mean, as it, as it was, um, you were told that there was a limit to the number of boxes or cases or whatever it was of cigarettes that you were allowed to buy from, I think, the checkers or something. I mean, imagine now. When yeah, you well, they were buy any at all. I wanted to buy seven cartons. You know, they'd give me yes. seven boxes and I'd say, cartons, no, seven cartons and of 30s and there would be you know, I mean, people didn't want to give them to me. Somehow I was buying too many cigarettes. Um, what was I doing? Was I, Did I have a spaza shop? You know, I don't know. <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> yeah, I found, that, I found that quite amusing that every time you went, they tried to just give you seven boxes. And every time you went, you had to remind them it was cartons. And then the manager kind of was, you know, well, we can do it this way and we'll, you know, gave you a number and we'll smuggle them around the back and kind of thing. It was this, uh, this yeah. whole little exercise in subterfuge of how you were going to get these cartons. Um, yeah, bizarre, absolutely bizarre. And, and when we think now of what people are going through to get cigarettes, I mean, you know, it, it makes it look quite laughable, really. Yes. Yes. When you think about it. I don't have to know about that. <laughs> yeah, no, me neither. Um, as I say, this is what I'm hearing from people yes. and seeing all over social media. I mean, it is, it is bizarre what people are going through and the lengths they are going through to get, um, to get hold of their, of yes. their cigarettes. It's, it's quite insane. Um, so the, the experience, I mean, this whole experience, you know, I'm sure that it's not really described in the book, and we're going to discuss it after the break, um, the different societal attitudes and the norms um, and the different opinions that, that people have and different um, groups have when it comes to looking after our elderly and what many people call our elders. And after the break, we're going to get into that. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Hi, I'm back and I'm chatting to my guest Colleen Higgs about her book, My Mother, My Madness, which is about her mom and the last 10 years of her mom's life in which she lived in a care facility. And Colleen has put her own experience with this together in a book. It's written in diary form 
And it's about her experience and how she felt at the time, her relationship with her mother going through all of this. And really it's, it's, I think I don't want to um, compare it to Jewish guilt, but um, a guilt, the theme of guilt, there is guilt there. There's, there's a lot of love. There's a lot of compassion and empathy and there's, there's just, it's blatant honesty. And as I said before, it's Colleen's heart and soul on the pages of this book. She doesn't hold back. Um, and Colleen, I really do, as, as I said before, and I'll say it once again, I commend you for this and your, your honesty in the way you dealt with this and, and just the way you, you managed your mother and the way you coped with the whole situation. It's, it's really, it's not something that everybody is able to do. It's not something that everybody wants to do. And it's not something that everybody does. And let's get onto the topic of, of expectation. And I know I said before that as women, there's a lot of expectation on us as, as being nurturers and there's expectation on women to be mothers. And when the roles are reversed and when we are the mothers, to our older relatives and specifically to parents, there's the expectation that the female members of the family are the ones who take that on. But as you said, you wanted to take it on. Your brothers did their fair share. And in the book, it comes through. There is no bitterness towards your siblings whatsoever. And um, that also comes through a lot. You, you are the one who is the primary caregiver for your mother and your siblings are mentioned with with love and with care, and it's it's really a. Although the the predominant care falls to you, they do play their part. But let's yeah. get onto this expectation role, this expectation of of the women being the nurturers and the carers, and there's the expectation of of us as women to be mothers. But let's be honest, not everyone is cut out to be a mother, even though you're expected to be one. Um, and then there are the different societal norms when it comes to looking after our our elderly and our elders. And yes, I, mean, I just want to say for me, you know, I did I, I, in the house that I, I live in, um, there's a cottage at the back. So there was space for my mother in a sense. But, you know, I knew that I wouldn't that my mental health wouldn't stand it. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I knew that she needed to live somewhere else um, and to be taken, you know, to be taken care of in a place where that she could get good care and then I could do the other things. Do you know what I'm saying? I just knew yes. that I couldn't have my mother right there. I, would, I wouldn't survive it myself. Well, that in itself is huge. And I'm sure that did your mother ever suggest that she come and live in that cottage? Um, I think she might have once or twice, but you know, I think she actually liked. Initially, she she wasn't happy about moving to the place she moved. It's in um, near Century City, and her apartment actually had a very beautiful view of Table Mountain. Yes, um, you mentioned that in the book. Yeah. yeah, so you know, she didn't want to go, but I think that. Um, she liked having that semblance of, of independence. She, you know, right to the end, she had her little apartment and 
you know, she didn't have to cook her meals. I mean, although she, there was a kitchenette, but so, you know, she had both some, uh, privacy and independence in a sense, but there was also everything else was taken care of, you know, her washing, um, the administration of her medication, which was important because <laughs> very much so. Exactly. And that's also part of, of what, what you say about, you know, you knew that you would not manage your own life and your own mental health, as you said, having her living not with you, but on your property and having to manage her every day. Yeah. And um, having her live where she lived, I mean, you managed to, it maintains a person's dignity. You know, and, and having, having an older person live in, in a retirement home, a retirement village, a care facility, whatever you, you call it, whatever you name it, just because, um, they have moved somewhere like that, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are not still contributing and active members of society. We're not taking that away from them. We're putting them somewhere or they are moving somewhere. And a lot of times, let's be honest, they choose to, to, to go and live in these, these villages and, and a lot of them are the most magnificent places. And I mean, look, in my case, I had to really take control of my mother's life and, you know, send her there. Yes. <laughs> um, right. Uh, with some resistance, but you know, she had actually given up the controls of her life. So, you know, so she went and she, you know, like I said, she became as much as she could be. I mean, she wasn't a person who was happy or satisfied with her life ever. Yes. So within her own way, I know she likes it. You know, she was, she was happy there. She was, she was contained. She felt safe. Um, yes, and I think that's the most important thing, that, that feeling of safety and security. And she did, to some degree, have a feeling of contentment with that. Yeah. I mean, for some people, it's much more important for them to to still be in control of their lives and to arrange everything. But my mother, I think, just... Look, I mean, it was a... Com- you know, it's difficult to say exactly how much was what, but it was a combination of having had the strokes and becoming demented, but also wanting to just let go of all the pressure and responsibilities of her life. That yes. is quite a hard life, you know, some ways. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and I think for you as well, it must have been, although difficult, and as you say, it was, um, you needed to, to in some ways force her to go and live there. You know, regardless of, of our relationships with our parents and whether they are difficult ones and whether we struggle with them, we still need our parents on whatever level that is. And yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think I wanted her to be okay as as well as she could of be. Of course, so of course. That's why I did what I did, even though. I had a lot of resistance inside of myself and, um, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as you say, you did have that difficult relationship, even though you, as you say, when you were a teenager, your relationship was that close. But, um, you know, 
I think for people who do have those difficult relationships, there's always the hope that that a broken relationship can be healed. So, and and yes. I think it's part of the healing. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'd love to just read another bit because I think that you're right that there's some way in which talking about it doesn't give quite the sense of the book that maybe can, can we can we can we do that after the break? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am back with my guest, Colleen Higgs, and Colleen is going to read some of an extract of her book, My Mother, My Madness. Um, Colleen, go ahead and share with us what you wanted to read from the book. Okay. Um, so this is more towards the beginning of the book. I'll just read a couple of bits from a couple of the different uh, headings, excerpts. Um, this one is called A Deeply Unsatisfying Love Affair. My whole life has felt like a long, deeply unsatisfying love affair with my mother. She is the beloved who doesn't love back. She is too caught up in her own dramas and unhappiness. She is the one who waits to be made happy, and it is an impossible task. Um, so I'm going to leave. Then I'm going on to this one. It's called Does She Wash Her Hair with Conditioner? Um, the bill came for her levy. I usually wait a couple of days before paying. Partly I'm being passive-aggressive, partly procrastinating. Maybe the two are the same thing. Leaping at doing something for my mother is not something that happens spontaneously. I have to drag myself by the hand, cajoling, wheedling, and making myself do the things I need to do, have to do, must do, have agreed to do, have taken it upon myself to do. She had two haircuts last month, two trips to the hairdresser. Since she has been living at the luxury retirement resort, her hair always looks straggly and greasy. At first I wondered if she was washing it with conditioner. I don't buy her conditioner anymore, so it can't be that. Her hair is now completely grey and never looks groomed or well cut. It could be that the hairdresser at the luxury retirement resort is hopeless. My mother looks like a burgy when I pick her up to take her out. She wears baggy, well-worn jeans with an elasticized waist, beach shoes with velcroed straps across her feet, and her toenails are always too long. She is reluctant to allow anyone to touch her feet. It makes her giggle, and she is squeamish about it. Her T-shirt or blouse is usually crumpled and slightly stained. I take her shopping for new clothes every six months or so for a few new items, but she either doesn't wear them or she quickly manages to make them look crumpled and stained too. She cut the sleeves off her pajamas with a pair of nail scissors recently. An old friend of hers visited her and afterwards phoned me. Carl, you must do something about your mother. She tried tactfully to tell me all the things I know already. What can I say? So, yeah. Um, yeah, and once again, I think that, that you know, and, and as you said at the beginning of the book, but this sums up what you about to read and and I'm going to emphasize again I know it sounds sad and depressing but but from there it just moves forward and and there's a spectrum it moves up on the spectrum of hope and it's uplifting and Colleen your your relationship and and the attitude that you had to your mother I found it heartwarming and as much as you you say that you you had this passive aggressive attitude towards doing things for your mother and the way you used to put off paying her levy and that actually, I'm sorry, it, it made me laugh. 
because I totally, <laughs> totally got it. I really did. Um, it, it was just your way of resistance. It was, it was just something, you know, it, I mean, you know, waiting a day or two to pay the levy. I love that. <laughs> just for whatever reason, I just oh, yeah. totally got it. And, and I mean, <laughs> Do you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I understood it. And I'm sure that, that, that for you listening, if you're in a similar situation or if you can relate to it in any way, I, I really am sure that you understand that, that, that passive aggressive, you know, you have to do it, but you don't have to do it now. You can wait a day or two or, and you'll do it in your time. You know, no one is going to tell you, I have to do it it's now. It's also partly about building up the, uh, I sort of had to brace myself sometimes. Like yes. My mother would phone Absolutely. me, I my phone on silent, and then I'd see it was her phoning. And I wouldn't, generally I wouldn't pick up straight then, you know. I would just kind of brace myself, get into my frame of mind of dealing with my mother, and then I would phone her back, you know. Yes. That's, I very seldom could actually just like pick up the phone when I saw it was her phoning. <laughs> you know, I needed to, to gather my strength. <laughs> I absolutely hear you. I absolutely hear you. I Colleen. I my mother my madness because what I'm also relating is my own madness, not just hers, you know. Yes. I mean, I think that in a sense, having someone who struggles with all those things as your mother, you know, you do, you are affected and. Absolutely. I, you you take it on. I've was you know I've been in psychoanalysis most of my adult life, so I think that's also why I'm aware. Like, oh, I can think to myself, oh, I am actually being passive aggressive now because I've spent yes, you, you know, take years it on and and you take it in. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, Pauline, thank you so so much for taking the time to chat to me this morning. I know that a lot of it may have been difficult, and but thank you so much, and thank you for this book. I think that so many people will relate to it. And I think it's going to help a lot of people as well. And oh, thank you. it is really just so, so appreciated. I've loved talking to you and for whoever's listening, for you listening, I hope that you have gained something from this and I hope that you will buy the book. I'm not quite sure when we're going to actually see the book in our bookshops, but um, it is in some bookshops already. Oh, but has it arrived? Um, yeah, it's at Love Books in Joburg. Uh, is your, oh, in Melville, um, okay. Are you just uh, Joburg's radio station? No, we're national. Oh, okay. International. Um, yeah, so it is in, in some bookshops and it is available on Loot online. Okay, um, great. It, it is That's getting perfect. out there, but it takes time because it's a small okay. publisher. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. And to you listening, thank you so much for listening. And keep reading, keep safe, and keep warm. We'll chat again next week.